Hey guys, thank you for joining us today on Talking Scripture. Hopefully you've heard that we are now on podcasting apps. You can find Talking Scripture on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Can you take a minute and just rate and subscribe to our podcast? That will go a long way in helping people find us. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to talk about, let's see, Jacob, Enos, Jerem. Jerem, Omni, Enos. Words of Mormon. Enos. Oh, Enos, Enos is good. Jerem. We're doing those. Yeah. Enos, Jerem, <laughs> the, the little, the skinny books. Yeah. The final books on the small plates of Nephi. So let's jump into Enos. Okay. I like this book as Enos, he seems like an, a regular dude. He's just going out and the words of his father sink deep in his heart. I like this as a father to say that what I say matters. Your kids may or may not roll their eyes when you're talking, but it sinks deep in their heart. They'll remember uh, at times that really matter the words that you speak. And I also like this as a sign or a way to look at how Enos first seeks for his own, own soul. And then as he receives a witness, he seeks for the welfare of his brothers in verse 9. And then after he receives a witness that they're going to be okay, he pleads for even his enemies. And so it's like, it's grace in motion. He receives grace and he's like, but I want you to give grace to these people. And of course, God says he will. So I really like this. I like to, when I teach it, I draw concentric circles. And the first circle is, how am I doing? Self. And then my brothers. My family. And then those outside of that circle. Yeah. And how do you like to teach Enos? I love to focus on prayer. Um, prayer is such a mystery to so many people. I remember that President Kimball, towards the end of his life, as president of the church, made the comment, I'm finally learning how to pray. And prayer is something natural to us, simple enough that children can do it, and yet complicated, that sometimes even the most faithful Latter-day Saints are puzzled by prayer. And so I love that Enos talks about a wrestle. So in Joseph Smith history, Joseph Smith describes prayer as the offering of our desires. He says he offered up the desires of his heart. And I really like to you know talk about that the arrow going up is often my desires. This is what I want, Lord. And we often pray for what we desire. But then in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is talking about prayer in Matthew chapter 6, he mentions that God knows the things that you hath need of. And therein is the challenge. I pray for what I want, and God often approaches the prayer with what I need. Now, prayer is really easy when what I want and what I need are the same thing. When what God knows I need and what, what God wants for me and what I want for myself are the same thing. And that does happen. We do have those prayers where what I want and what I need are the same thing. But quite often, the difficulty in prayer is when what I want and what I need are not the same thing. And so Jacob talks about this wrestle. This wrestle. Look at all the words that he uses. Verse 2, I'll tell you about the wrestle which I had before God. Verse 3, hungered, my soul hungered. I cried in mighty prayer and supplication all the day long. When the night came, I was still raising my voice. End of verse 9, pour out my soul. Verse 10, struggling in the spirit. Many long struggles, verse 11. Verse 12, labored. Verse 13, desire. And I think there's a great lesson here that prayer is often a struggle. Prayer is often a wrestle with God. Not that he doesn't love us, not that he doesn't care about us, but there's often a wrestle between what I want and what I need. And 
I think Jesus kind of illustrates this wrestle in Gethsemane. If you look at his very first prayer, he walks into Gethsemane and he says, Lord, if thou be willing, remove this cup. I would like, that's my desires, I would like to forego this cup. Is there any way we can do this without me drinking this cup? And yet the father clearly said, no, that's not what you need. He sent an angel to comfort the Savior, which was kind of the father's answer to say, no, my son, this is not what you need. And then there was that incredible second prayer that says, Father, if this cup isn't going to go away, he seems to be saying, give me the strength to drink it. So may I suggest an interesting insight into the wrestle? I want to illustrate in in ether with the trip of the Jaredites across the ocean. So the, the, the question on the table is, what do you want me to do for your boats? so that you can have light in your vessel. What do you want me to have do for your boats? You can't have windows because you're going to be dashed. You're going to be tossed. You're going to be broke upon. Now, the reason they're going to be tossed and dashed and broke upon is because there's mountain waves and a terrible tempest. And the reason there's mountain waves and a terrible tempest is because there's a furious wind. And the reason there's a furious wind in Ether chapter 2 is that the Lord is blowing it. So do you see what he's saying? The Lord's blowing the wind, which is causing these mountain waves, which is dashing upon the boat, and he's saying, that's why you can't have windows, so what do you want me to do for your boat? Well, how many of us would say, well, Lord, I got a great solution. Stop blowing the wind. If you stop blowing the wind, I won't need help in my boat. That's good. I really like how Mike Wilcox talked about that in the March 2009 talk that he gave at BYU-Hawaii about how the brother of Jared wished that the Lord would blow softly, just breeze us to the promised land. We'll sit on the deck, we'll fish, we'll get tanned, we'll play shuffleboard. How many times do we want that to be the version of our, of our life? And so many times when we pray, what I offer the Lord, my desires is, Lord, take away the wind, change my circumstances. And the wrestle we have with God is that the circumstances aren't going to change. So if I'm not going to stop blowing the wind, what do you want me to do for the boat? So what Enos is praying here is for forgiveness of sins. I want a forgiveness of my sins. And the Lord probably, and again, we don't know, but just knowing myself, the Lord is probably coming back with, well, then you need to change. You need to stop doing some things. I'll forgive your sins when you change. Oh, but Lord, I don't want to change. I just want you to forgive my sins. No, I want you to change. And then there's this wrestle. So sometimes we pray for the wind without contemplating what it means for the boat. So may I suggest, brothers and sisters, that maybe the approach we take is when we pray for the wind, we throw in a but if not, and we ask for something for the boat. So, for example, Lord, take away my mom's cancer. Would you please take away my mom's cancer? That's changed my circumstance. And the Lord says, no, I'm not going to take away your mom's cancer. For reasons you can't understand, I'm not going to take away your cancer. So what if we threw in a but if not? What if the wrestle is, Lord, take away my mom's cancer? But if not... Would you give her strength to deal with the pain she's in? 
Lord, bless my baby that she'll sleep tonight. Change my circumstances. Stop blowing the wind. Stop causing the problem I'm facing. Change my circumstances. Bless my baby that she will sleep tonight. But then what if we threw in a but if not? And the but if not is, but if not, help me to be patient with her tomorrow. Give me strength. Give me strength to deal with the lack of sleep that I'm having. Now notice that different twist, that just that 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 wrestle becomes a okay, I'm gonna let go of my prayer for the wind, but focus my prayer on a prayer for the boat. And I I just sense that what Enos is doing here is he's praying for forgiveness of sins. But the Lord is pushing for changed behavior, and then the Lord, the more Enos thinks about it, and the more he prays about it, and the more he he wants a forgiveness of sins, he finally says, "Okay, Lord, yeah, I, I'm going to change. I, I'm willing to change," and he prays for the boat. And when we start praying for the boat, boy, that's a very different prayer. I think Jesus's prayer went from, "Lord, take away the cup," to. If this cup isn't going to go away, give me the strength to drink it. Yeah, help me do it. And I think Enos also knows the prophecies that Isaiah said, that they're going to get wrecked, the Nephites are going to be destroyed. And so in the second half of the book of Enos, in verse 13, he basically says that. He says, okay, if if our nation is going to crumble, well, could you at least preserve the record? Could you preserve the record so that... And the message is retained. I just, yeah. you just sense that acceptance. So imagine him praying, please don't wreck our people. Lord, please don't destroy the Nephites. Yeah. Why are you destroying the Nephites? I don't understand why you're going to de- destroy the Nephites. Take away the storm. Don't do that. Call, solve my mom's cancer. And then finally, as he just accepts the Lord's will. And that's probably the greatest part of the wrestle. It's a mature thing to just surrender. Okay, Lord, if you're not going to spare the Nephi, if they're going to be destroyed, then can I pray for the boat? Could we possibly make sure that the records get preserved so that the message is is retained? And you just see that in Enos, that that acceptance of the Lord's will and then a prayer for the boat and not the wind. You kind of see that surrender at the end of verse 16. Yeah. Where he says, okay, we're going to get wrecked, but can you preserve the records? And let's bring him to these these very people that destroy us. And then I love the phrase where it says in the end, in his own due his time. Own due. I know that's, that's a, going to take some time. That's Lord. a surrender. Yeah. And then look at the end of verse 17. When we surrender, there's just a peace that comes. It says, my soul did rest. So it's good. It's good. I like, Bryce, how you talk about, uh, hey, we can apply this to our life. We can look at this as prayer. We can look at this as a surrender to the Lord's will. And to, I'm just going to nerd out a little bit on the Bible, but verse 20 is all Torah. So essentially what he's saying is, here's why they're messed up. And he says they're bloodthirsty, which is literally is to drink the blood of beasts. That's Leviticus 17, 11 through 12, where the Lord says you can't do that. That's also Genesis 9, 4. Later, the author of Jerem is going to say the same thing. The author of Jeremy gets a little bit more specific. If you look at the end of verse 6, in Jerem 1, 6, it says they would drink the blood of beasts. So that's a violation. That makes you unclean, Leviticus 17, 11 through 12. Uh, you're probably not going to read Le- Leviticus uh, 17, 11 through 12 with your kids or in a gospel doctrine setting, but just know that Enos is a man who's read the, the scriptures. 
Look in the middle of verse 20 where it says their loins, uh, they had a skin girded about their loins and their heads were shaven. That's in violation of Leviticus 19.27. Now it's foreign to us to think that we can't shave our heads, but in Leviticus 19 uh, verse 27, the prohibition was to not shave the corners of your beard or the corners of your head. And it's kind of strange to us, but to Enos, that was his culture. And so he looks at the Lamanites as certainly unclean, but he wants them to be preserved. And I like this, and he, he his soul gets rest. It's a good look at an overall wrestle, as Bryce talks about. Matt Bowen is a scholar of languages, and he wrote an article called, uh, And There Wrestled a Man With Him, Enos's Adaptations of the Onomastic Wordplay of Genesis. And that sounds like a really fancy title, but essentially what he says is, there's punning going on in the book of Enos, and I really like punning when it happens, wordplay as it were. So in the very beginning of the Book of Mormon, we have Nephi, and he says, I, Nephi, having been born of goodly parents, that is Nephi punning on his name because Nephi, Nephi, Nephi means good or goodly. And so the Book of Mormon starts off punning. We'll look at the very beginning of Enos 1.1. It came to pass that I, Enos, knowing my father that he was a just man, for he taught me in his language. Enos, the word in Hebrew for man is Enosh. And so his name probably wasn't Enos. It probably was Enosh. And so we have Enosh, Enosh right in the beginning. He's a just man. Matt Bowen gets really into the weeds. I actually find it fascinating. What Matt talks about is Enos is punning with his name, but he's also trying to cast our minds back onto Jacob who was a just man. Now, his father's name is Jacob, but what Enos wants us to do with the way he's constructing his narrative is he wants us to cast our minds back to another Jacob that wrestled. And lovers of the Bible immediately go to, oh my goodness, he's punning on Genesis 32. And so what Matt Bowen does is he takes your mind back to Genesis 32 and he takes you through the construction of the narrative to show you that the words for wrestle and the for jabbok and Jacob and embrace are all puns. They're words that are very similar in Hebrew. And in in essence, the word for the wrestle can also be embrace. And so then later, when Jacob is reconciled with Esau in the Old Testament, there's this sacred embrace. And I'll post this picture in the show notes, but there's this beautiful picture of Jacob and Esau embracing, and that is the atonement. And so the wrestle could be this embrace. Now, kings were embraced by the high priest when they sat on the throne, and it's it's really cool. It's related with kingship and all these kinds of things. But I like this image of Enos. He's wrestling with the Lord, but I think it's also a pun. In, a, in essence, he's saying, God is taking me into his family. He's embracing me. And then look at the very last verse. In verse 27, it says, I'll rejoice in the day when my mortal shall put on immortality, and I shall stand before him and I shall see his face with pleasure. And he will say unto me, come unto me, you blessed. There is a place prepared for you in the mansions of my father. Amen. The embrace, the wrestle. So read Matt Bowen's article. We'll post it in the show notes. Matt, thanks for writing this. I love when these really awesome scholars write really cool stuff to make the scriptures pop and have relevance. But overarching or overall, to me, this text is about coming home. It's about grace. It's about Enos seeing who he is, and then caring about his brothers and even his enemies. And I think that's a great message for us today, isn't it, Bryce? As we live in a world where there's people who are attacking us, and I think Enos is giving us a good model. Yep, love him. 
reach yeah. out for them. But fix you. Fix you first. Fix your family. And then love the world. I love that pattern. Yeah. Okay. So, Jerem. Jerem. We're handing off, we're handing the baton to so many different authors in Jerem and then Omni. And it's kind of like a historical narrative in the small plates and it's super tight and we cover hundreds of years. And what do you take out of this, Bryce, when you teach it? I love just, just gold nuggets here and there. I love in Jerem chapter one, verse seven, our kings and our leaders were mighty men in the faith of the Lord, and they taught the people the ways of the Lord. And that's he's setting up this stage for Alma and so much of the history of the Book of Mormon is that righteousness is much more important in an armament than any weapon. You know, you can have bigger guns, but your leaders need to be led by God. And that's and you'll Jerem be fine. 1 verse that's 7. That's Jerem 1 verse 7. Yeah. I love verse 11 where he talks about here is a group of people who caught the vision of what the law of Moses is for. And I love just those little insights to hear from people who were worshiping under the law of Moses that they said, look, I get the intent for which the law of Moses was given, and that was to persuade us to look unto a Messiah and to believe on on him as if he were already there. So just these little nuggets that you get once in a while. Um, I love in Omni... I love the story of the Mulekites. Okay. That's, you know, King Mosiah the first, King Benjamin's dad, King Mosiah the first ends up having to move again. So the, the Nephites are on the move and Mosiah is leading them and they discover the people of Zarahemla, which are the Mulekites who came over approximately the same time Lehi did. Uh, Mulek was one of the final uh, kings of Judah under the Babylonian captivity and his his kids, wait, Mulek wasn't the king. Yeah, so Mulek was the son of Zedekiah. Zedekiah is the final king, and Mulek is one of his sons. And so the Mulekites, I'd love to find out their story someday, that the Mulekites must have been led by the Lord to America, just like Lehi did. The difference, though, is if you look at Omni, verse 17, they didn't bring any records with them. And all of a sudden, you begin to see the importance of Lehi going back for the brass plates and the role that having the scriptures is going to play among the Nephites. Well, the Mulekites don't have the scriptures. And because of that, verse 17, their language had been corrupted. And they had brought no records with them, and they denied the being of their creator. It that's, wor- that's worse than the language. It can't be, cons- it, it can't be a coincidence that the Nephites bring records, and their language is preserved, and they know who they are, and they worship the Creator, they've got the Spirit, they've got the Holy Ghost, they build temples, they worship God, and yet the Mulekites, who left at about the same time, had the same background, the same language, and the same faith, and yet now we find them hundreds of years later, a, a corrupt language and a corrupt religion, a corrupt faith because they didn't have any records. I just think that just sings volumes to the value of having the scriptures with us. And, and reading them. And reading them. I, I, using was them. it Mark Twain that said something about if you can read but you don't, what's the difference of not being literate? So you got you to read them. Um, there's a lot of different models for verse 17. Uh, so one of the models is this, that Mulek leaves and maybe he's a baby or maybe he's in his mother's womb when they leave. And so these people are going to trace their lineage, their idea of kingship back to this this king. And so when these two groups meet, you have the Nephites who they don't come from kings and you have these Mulekites and the Book of Mormon doesn't use the phrase Mulekites. He uses the, uses the phrase like the people of Mulek. 
And their tradition is, hey, we come from kings. I find it interesting that the smaller group, the Nephites, they become at least their king becomes the king of the greater group who descends from kings. One author said, this is an example of the lamb swallowing the lion. They're so much more numerous. We don't know you know, how this is going on. How are these languages corrupted? But Bryce is right. If you don't have the text and you're put back into this place where there's indigenous people, the people of Mulek come to America and there's all these other cultures, they kind of get swallowed up in that language. That's another model. Another model to help explain this loss of language, and I really like this, one author said, what if Mulek lived in Babylon? What if Zedekiah is killed and Mulek lives in Babylon and during that time period of the captivity, they speak Aramaic? And so you have this Aramaic-speaking people and the children and the children of those children come, a group of them come to Americas and they have a background in Aramaic. Well, now you take this group that speaks Aramaic and they come and they live among indigenous people in the Americas, and you get more adulteration of their language. Um, However you want to slice it, I don't understand it totally, but I look at this like Bryce is saying as a model for, hey, read the scriptures with your kids, because how you teach them is how they're going to teach their kids. And if you don't teach them, then how are they going to teach their kids? In other words, tradition matters. Um, There's a ton of historical stuff in here. I'm going to go quick through this, but before I do, I'm just going to say this. Uh, There are multiple models to where the Book of Mormon took place. The two biggest that I see in my mind are the North America model and the Mesoamerican model. And from the evidence I've read, I'm leaning strongly towards uh, the Mesoamerican model. Sorensen, John Sorensen wrote a book called uh, The Ancient American Setting for the Book of Mormon, sold at Deseret Book. Another author, Rod Meldrum, is has a book at Deseret Book called The Book of Mormon in America's Heartland. And just so you know, I <laughs> lean towards the Heartland theory. Yeah. So this is probably good we talk about this. So, so I just want you to know, I don't really care, but uh, you can go to Deseret Book and they sell these different books of well, where do we think the Book of Mormon took place? So like I said, I lean towards Mesoamerica, but like I'm not married to any of this. But here's what I find fascinating. I don't have skin in the game per se, but I want to present some of these ideas to show that the Book of Mormon certainly is plausible. I'm not trying to prove the Book of Mormon is true. And I certainly wouldn't share this on a gospel doctrine setting. I wouldn't want to cause contention if I said something that would cause somebody to say, well, wait, I think it happened here. Uh, there's an author by the name of Michael Coe, and he is an expert in the Maya. And these are people that lived in the Yucatan Peninsula and Mesoamerica. And Michael Coe is not a fan of the Book of Mormon. He's been public um, on a certain podcast that I'm not going to mention where he says, listen, the Book of Mormon's not true. And he's just, he's an enemy of the Book of Mormon and he's an expert on Mesoamerica and specifically the Maya. And what I find fascinating, I'm holding the book in my hand right here, and you can just lift this right out of the Book of Mormon. So many things that he talks about are happening in the Book of Mormon. And it would be multiple hours of a podcast to go through his text page by page and show the correlations between what he sees during what's called the pre-classic and classic time periods of the Book of Mormon. But we don't have to do a podcast on that. There are a couple of guys who wrote a really good article that is really worth your time if this interests you. And I, by the way, I love the name of this article. It's such a fun name. It's called Joseph Smith, the World's Greatest Guesser. It's so funny. I love the name of that article. And it's in the interpreter and it's published by Bruce and Brian Dale. And these two individuals just go through point by point of Coe's text and they just show 
so many correlations between the Book of Mormon and the Maya. I'm just going to briefly kind of condense. I'm honing in on the Book of Omni, you guys. I'm just getting into that text. I'm not doing the whole Book of Mormon, but it all of this stuff's coming right out of Brian and Bruce's article on Joseph Smith, the world's greatest guesser, which is such a fun article. So here I'm going to go through these pretty quick. So first... So what you're doing, Mike, is you're connecting from... You're going to read something in Omni and yes. connect it to the history that other people are bringing about the Mayan people. Yes, that's what that's I'm doing. That's a thank, fun ca- connection. Yeah, yeah, thank you for clarifying so that. Sometimes I don't in, do that. Here's what's in Omni, and here's what experts who even dis- disagree with the Book of Mormon are saying about the Mayan people. Yeah, I Ready? love this. Yeah. This is fun. <laughs> yeah, so here we go. Omni 110 says that there's a lot of war. Second line. Well... Right out of Coe's book, he says, endemic internecine warfare destroyed the societies. There might have been fierce warfare or perhaps even a popular revolt, but most Mayan archaeologists now agree that three factors were paramount in their downfall. Endemic warfare. The Maya were obsessed with war. The annals of these people speak of little but intertribal conflict. So they were huge into war. And, uh, you know, you read the Book of Mormon, and we got chapters on this. Um, another a correlation between the Maya and the Book of Mormon is Omni 112. And Omni 112 talks about capital or leading city-states dominating clusters of other cities. We see this on Omni 112, Alma 61.8, Helaman 127. Zarahemla is clearly the Nephite capital of a bunch of different city-states. And Co writes this. He says, We now know that not all Maya polities were equal. The kings of some lesser states were said to be possessed by the rulers of more powerful ones. That's on page 275 of his book. So that's another hit or correlation. Abrupt break in dynasties is a third. In Omni 1 through 19, basically the book of Omni, we read of this abrupt break in a dynasty. We have these people that Bryce has mentioned called the Mulekites, and their dynasty changes. Why? They get a new ruler in there. And Co says this is happening. He says there are signs of profound breaks in the dynasties of the Maya. He says this on page 100. He says it on page 116. Active interchange of ideas. This is like the fourth idea. Omni 1, 12 through 15, as well as a multiplicity of texts in the Book of Mormon, talk about this idea that the elites are exchanging ideas and technology. And Coe is very specific and detailed in his book, and we'll give you the page numbers on this, where he talks about these interchanging of ideas among the elites, technology and things like that. The fifth is that foreigners or new rulers introduce or impose a new language or writing system on the indigenous people that they come that they come across and that in essence is what Omni 1 17 and 18 tells us one uh, Omni 1 says verse 17 the time that Mosiah discovered them these mulekites are more numerous than they are but what do they do well, they don't, they don't even have the language. It says that their language is corrupt. The end of verse, uh, verse 17 says that they couldn't understand them. So what happened was Mosiah caused that they should be taught his language. And it came to pass that after they were taught in the language of Mosiah, Zarahemla gave a genealogy of his fathers according to his memory, and they're written, but not on these plates. And then they united together in verse 19, and Mosiah became their king. So the lamb swallowed the lion. This example right here in Omni 1 is in Coe's book, 
what he says is happening amongst the Maya. And that's why this article is called Joseph Smith, the World's Greatest Guesser. If you're a 23-year-old kid in upstate New York and you're going to write about a culture that you know these cultures come together and the language is imposed on the other culture, I mean, talk about specific. And then to actually have known societies write a history that does that very thing. Uh, uh, yeah. What do you do with this, right? A um, couple more. Engraved writing on stone. Page 177 of his book uh, co-writes that uh, they inscribed lineages of their people in stone. Um, Fascinating stuff. So what do we read in Omni 120? Same stuff. There was a large stone and there were engravings and they interpreted them. So we've got engravings on stones. gave an account of one Coriantumer. So it was a historical account. They wrote their genealogies on stones. It's fascinating. And last one, um, the idea that there was a steep decline and disappearance of an ancient culture at the same time that the Book of Mormon says, this is what Coe says. He says, quote, there is some consensus among archaeologists that the Olmecs, and this is what a lot of scholars think the Jaredites were, that there was an association there between the Olmecs and the Jaredites. Okay, we're back to the quote, that the Olmecs of southern Mexico had elaborated many of these traits beginning over 3,000 years ago, and much of the complex culture in Mesoamerica is Olmec in origin. And then he says, that's on page 14 of his book, and then on page 61 he says, the Olmec civilization went into a decline in 400 B.C., and so once again, that's what we read. We read about it right here in the book of Omni that they meet Coriantumr, kind of the last of these, these guys, these Jaredites, and that Jaredites are in decline right at the time when the Olmecs go into decline. So anyway, whether or not you're married to the Mesoamerican model, what I just did was I took uh, Dale and Dale's article on all these points of correlation, and I, I'm just honing in on the book of Omni. The, the book of Omni has eight Uh, very specific and correlated examples where what's happening in the Book of Mormon is what's happening historically in that area at that time period, which is pretty fascinating. Um, Would you teach this in a class? Probably not. But I just think since we're doing a podcast and you're driving in your car, you can just kind of listen and go, oh, that's kind of cool. And the book by uh, Co. is called The Maya. Um, This I'm holding in my hand the ninth edition by Michael Co. and Stephen Houston. So anyway, that's Omni, a little bit of history. Kind of fun. And just to balance that, I just want to throw this quotation from James E. Faust in. Just, we ought to not get so caught up in these are fun, fascinating, intriguing things that confirm our faith. They don't prove our faith. They confirm our faith. It's fun to see that there's a correlation. But I just remind everyone, James E. Faust said, it is important to know what the Book of Mormon is not. It is not primarily a history, although much of what it contains is historical. George Q. Cannon stated, quote, The Book of Mormon is not a geographical primer. It was not written to teach geographical truths. What is told is of what is told us of the situation of the various lands or cities is usually simply an incidental, re- incidental remark connected with the doctrine or historical portions of the work. The test for understanding this sacred book is preeminently spiritual. An obsession with secular knowledge rather than spiritual understanding will make its pages more difficult to unlock. Just as a balance, we ought to remember that the Book of Mormon is primarily a spiritual record connecting us to God, not necessarily a historical record connecting its people to ancient inhabitants. But I do believe that we can confirm a lot of our faith with, with 
archaeological findings. Yeah, and these the are real people. The proof of the Book of Mormon, the definitive proof of the Book of Mormon that either proves or disproves the Book of Mormon doesn't exist. There is no definitive proof that says, yes, it's true, or no, it's not, on neither side. Neither side can throw out historical evidence that proves or disproves their yeah. case. But there are little snippets that are sure fun to talk about. And they are about. fun. But even if they had a cell that said Zarahemla was here, That's right. it's not going to increase anybody being baptized. Nope. It'd be cool. No, nope, but it would be a confirmation of our faith. Yeah. All right, that's Omni. So Omni's done, and then so Mormon gives down. this little uh, thing. Mormon now Mormon's not living in BC, is he, Bryce? No, nope. way later. Nope. But let's point out at the very end of Omni. This is significant. See, the large plates of Nephi when they ran out, they would write, they would create more, and so there was this tradition among the Nephites that the large plates of Nephi are going to continue. But at the very end of Omni, the, the second to the last thing he says is, I'm about to lie down in my grave, and these plates are full. And the implication, though, is we're not adding to them. This is it. Yeah, we're done. This is the end of this set of plates. So let's be clear what we're reading. When Mormon starts the gold plates, he starts an abridgment, his own abridgment in Mormon's words of Lehi through King Benjamin. And that was called the Book of Lehi. And that was written in Mormon's words, in Mormon's language, taken from the record of the large plates of Nephi. And so Mormon covers the history of Lehi through Benjamin. And then he throws in the small plates. And if you'll turn to Mormon, or words of Mormon, which if you notice the dates, pushes us several hundred years after the birth of Christ. So we're going way forward in history to explain what we're doing. And Mormon is going to tell us, hey, after I, verse 3, after I had made an abridgment from the plates of Nephi down to the reign of this King Benjamin, of whom Amalekai spake, I searched among the records which had been delivered into my hands, and I found these plates, meaning the small plates of Nephi. Which is first and second books of Nephi, Jacob, Enos, Jerem, Omni. Down to Omni. Down to that, these plates are full. I found these records, which contain the small account of the prophets from Jacob down to the reign of King Benjamin and many of the words of Nephi. Verse 4, these things really please me. The small plates. The small plates. Verse 5, therefore... I chose these things. I choose these things to finish my record upon them. Which remainder of my record I shall I'll take from the large plates? So he abridges Lehi to Benjamin. Then he throws in the small plates, which are Lehi to Benjamin. And then he's going to continue from Benjamin on from the large plates. So he seems to be saying there's a duplicate record here. I know that there's two parallel account. So we've got my version of Lehi to Benjamin, and then you've got the eyewitness account of Nephi and his brothers and his descendants and their account of Lehi to Benjamin, and I'm putting them both in. And they're not the same. And they're not the same. One was written by Mormon, and one was written by Nephi, Jacob, Enos, Jerem, Omni, words of, you know, all of that. And then he says in verse 7, basically, I have no idea why I'm doing this. I have no idea why I'm doing this. Except for I was told to. I do this for a wise purpose, for thus it whispereth me, according to the workings of the Spirit of the Lord which is in me. And now I do not know all things, but the Lord knoweth all things which are to come, therefore he worketh in me. Now what's funny is, if you go back to 1 Nephi 6 and 9, Nephi says the same thing. I have no idea why I'm producing the small plates in the first place. Because everything's in the large plates, and only a portion of everything is in the small plates. And Nephi says, I don't know which purpose I know not. 
I don't know why I'm writing the small plates. And then here we have Mormon who's throwing in the large, the small plates onto the gold plates saying, I have no idea why I'm throwing them in. All right, ready, everyone? Let's fast forward to 1828, 1829. Joseph Smith starts translating the Book of Mormon from the Book of Lehi, which is Mormon's abridgment of Lehi to Benjamin. And when he's roughly done, he's produced 116 pages of translated text. And most of you guys know what happens to that. Bum, bum, bum. And now all of a sudden, do you, I wonder what happened. I love to find out in the spirit world or wherever they were, what did Nephi and Mormon suddenly do when Martin Harris lost 116 pages? Now, do you remember, the plan was to steal the 116 pages, to alter the words, and then when Joseph Smith retranslates, which means they assumed he would go back to Mormon's abridgment of Lehi to Benjamin, when he goes back and retranslates, they've altered the words, and then they would say Joseph couldn't produce the same text again. So clearly he's making it up, and therefore this is a fraud. Now, that is a brilliant plan to foil the Book of Mormon, except for the fact that the Lord threw in the small plates onto the gold plates. And now Joseph isn't going to go back to the book of Lehi. He's simply going to use the small plates instead, which is absolutely astounding that in 600 BC, the Lord would tell Nephi, make another set of plates. And then in 385 AD, or whenever it occurs, the Lord says to Mormon, throw in those plates, word for word brilliant. Now, what does that mean for you and I? That's the question. If God is able to uh, know, if God knew 2,400 years in advance that he would need another copy of Lehi to Benjamin, that Martin Harris would give in to the pleadings of his wife and take the pages and lose them, If the Lord knew that 2,400 years in advance and was able to set everything in motion so that that wouldn't ruin the publication of the Book of Mormon, then tell me what the Lord can do in your life. Tell me what the Lord can do in terms of getting people in the right place. My wife grew up in Cedar City. I grew up in Salt Lake. Chances of us meeting, slim to none. I'm a big town boy. I'm a big city boy in Salt Lake. She's a small town country girl in Cedar City. And yet, the Lord masterfully got the two of us together. He put her exactly where she needed to be. Her father lost a job, got a job in Salt Lake. Coincidence that this man in Cedar City would suddenly get a job in Salt Lake? Well, he gets a job at the Capitol building. So if you're moving your family to Salt Lake and your job is in the Capitol building, where do you buy a house? Why, South Jordan, of course. (laughs) Many miles away from the Capitol building. Well, it just so happens that they bought a house in my ward. I came home from my mission, and there she was in my ward. And I fell in love, and we married. And not one year goes by after we marry that he loses his job at the Capitol building and moves right back down to Cedar City. The Lord knows exactly how to cross our paths and to put opportunities in place, people and things. 
if um if he can prepare for the loss of the 116 pages 2400 years before it happens he can do everything he needs to do to save you and put opportunities in place and people in place so that when it's time you meet and things are wonderful it's kind of like uh what we did when we talked about Jacob where the Lord's like, I'm going to move this branch over here. And the servant's like, are you sure you want to move it there? That's there? a really bad piece of dirt. And he's like, counsel, counsel me, not. me not. I know what I'm I doing. Knew. There was that volcano that blew up and put all that stuff in the air a few years before Joseph Smith. And it caused... That caused Joseph Smith's family to leave. Yeah. It wrecked the crops. It, yeah. it was the it was the it was the winter that never ended in Vermont. They yeah, Vermont. They had to move and they had to go to another location, and it brought him to where he needed to be. And my experience is similar to yours. I didn't grow up in Utah. I grew up in California, and I remember I met a fellow on my mission that had a really good influence on me. And long story short, I ended up moving to Utah, and um, I would. I was going to a uh, Weber State University of all places, which I never would have heard of in California. Anyway, so I'm going to Weber State and I end up moving out. I have a friend named Nate and he says, hey, you want to come live in this basement? It was a really great rental deal. So I move off campus and I'm going to a totally different ward. And one day I'm walking in the Institute building and uh, Bishop Baker, who was an Institute teacher there at Weber State, came up to me and said, I need to talk to you. And I sat in his office and he says, I don't know why but you're supposed to teach Sunday school in my ward. And I said, Bishop, I'm not in your ward. I'm not in your stake. I live 20 miles away. There's no way I'm going to be able to do that. And he says, not a problem. I, I called your leaders and they've cleared it. You're supposed to teach Sunday school in our ward. Will you accept it? And I said, well, yeah, if you've cleared it, I, if you're good with it, I'm good with it. And kind of like what you said, just a few weeks after that, my wife was sitting in that class and I'll never forget it. I'll never forget. And there's so many parts of the story, but we ended up getting married and um, after we got married, I, I told her some of these things. Like I remember there was one time before we even dated, I had a dream about her. And in the dream, I heard a voice and the voice says, you've got to talk to this girl. And I thought, this is really weird. I could never tell her about this dream. So after we get married, I'm like, I have to tell you this story, right? First of all, I wasn't supposed to be in your ward. Secondly, I had a dream. Anyway, it didn't sound so weird after we were married, but it would have sounded really weird on a date. And, and there's so many experiences in my life where kind of what you're talking about, Bryce, where I don't really totally understand it as it's happening. But then after it unfolds, I look back and I see that there's divine providence that is intimately aware of me and my circumstance. I just love it. So Elder Remland of the Quorum of the Twelve gave a talk called By Divine Design, and he gave it in the October 2017 conference, and we'll link it. But essentially in his talk, he kind of pushes you to think about that, to think, you know, how many coincidences are there really? And his contention is that the Lord is aware of us and he knows of our circumstance. And so I just want to add my witness to that. He says, the Lord's hand is guiding you by divine design. He is in the small details of your life as well as the major milestones. I just love that. That's beautiful. So I think that's a really good way to look at, you know, how do I take the words of Mormon and apply them in, in my life? Verse seven, the Lord knoweth all things which are to come, wherefore he worketh in me to do according to his will. Beautiful. That's good. Now what we're going to do is now we're going to shift back to Mormon. So we have not covered Mormon. We're now shifting into the abridgment of Mormon. We're going to pick it up in Mosiah as we move forward. It's now Mormon taking these from the the, the brass plate or the the record of the Nephites, the large plates of Nephi. But 
I got to say, you know, I, I, I know it cost us dearly, but I'm so grateful that Martin Harris lost 116 pages. I'm sure it was wonderful. I'm sure Mormon's abridgment of this material would have been wonderful, but man, have I loved the actual words of Nephi and Jacob. It's just been a tremendous journey to actually read. I love Nick. I love Nephi. I love Jacob. And, and so I'm grateful to have their actual testimonies and their actual words. So thanks for listening. Oh, and one more thing. Here's a plug. If anything we say is resonating with you and you're like, man, I really like this, share it. And with that, we'll see you next time. All right. Bye.